Hi there, I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of August 7th, 2023. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. President Biden has designated more than 1,500 square miles to the north and south of Grand Canyon National Park as a new national monument. As Al Macias reports, the move fulfills the longtime wishes of Native American tribes and environmentalists to preserve the land. On Tuesday morning, Native Americans from the Havasupai and other Arizona tribes welcomed President Biden to the historic Red Butte Airfield just a few miles south of the Grand Canyon. Thomas Ayuja is the chairman of the Havasupai tribe. He said the president's visit was cause for celebration for indigenous communities who spent decades advocating to protect the land near the Grand Canyon National Park. So we've been fighting and fighting, and even though we were kind of defeated, but we never gave up. We continued to fight. We pushed forward. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American cabinet secretary, said the National Monument designation marks a new era of collaboration and stewardship between tribal communities and the U.S. government. Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva said that means tribes will finally have a say on lands they call home. The ancestral lands are not forgotten fantasies, but realities right across us. And that the role of indigenous people in the tribes will be of significance, not window dressing. Biden said the new designation was emblematic of his administration fulfilling longstanding promises to Native American tribes. Many were forced from their ancestral homes in decades past. In his remarks, Biden noted that the very act of preserving the Grand Canyon as a national park had denied indigenous people full access to the land they hold sacred. The time when some seek to ban books and bury history, we're making it clear that we can't just choose to learn only what we want to know. We should learn everything that's good, bad, and the truth about who we are as a nation. That's what great nations do. And we're the greatest of all nations. Some, however, have argued Biden's designation had weakened the nation. Republican lawmakers and the mining industry have touted the area's economic benefits and argued that mining is a matter of national security. The U.S. is heavily reliant on Russia for nuclear fuel. The area Biden designated as a national monument is rich in uranium deposits. Senior Biden officials say existing mining claims will not be affected. Republican state lawmakers like Representative Barbara Parker weren't convinced. Arizona is the second largest mining state in the nation. This is nothing more than going to weaken the strength of Arizona and all that we do. At an emergency legislative hearing in Kingman on Monday evening, Mojave County Supervisor Travis Lingenfelter said tribal concerns that uranium mining would damage their sacred land are overblown. What they're citing is back in the 1940s and the 1950s, way over on the Navajo Nation in Coconino County, um, there were some uranium mines that were not mitigated properly. The EPA had to get involved. That was in the 40s and the 50s. It is not 2023. Biden and tribal leaders say the National Monument designation aims to make sure the mistakes of the last century are not repeated. Reporting from near the Grand Canyon, Al Macias for KJZZ News. In the news. 
More than 30 bills that would affect the LGBTQ community were introduced in the Arizona legislature this year, but few of them passed, and none have been signed into law by Governor Hobbs. Kirsten Dorman takes a look back at the legislative session that inspired demonstrations at the Capitol and conversations across the state. There are, to date, in 2023, over 500 anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced nationwide. That's Andy Young, the co-chair of the Arizona Board of GLSEN, the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network. Almost 300 of those are anti-trans, and that's at both the national and the state level across the country. Young says an unaccepting atmosphere at school leads to more absences and increased dropout rates among LGBTQ students. And she says those trends are encouraged by bills like SB 1001, which would have restricted the use of preferred pronouns in schools. When students are misgendered, they feel invalidated and unseen, right, which just leads to more of that psychological distress and adverse mental outcomes. That same bill, Young says, puts some students in a difficult or sometimes even dangerous position. I agree with wanting to know as much as I can about what's going on with my child. But the fact is, like, we would love to believe that all parents are loving and supportive, but it's simply not true. In a letter explaining her veto of SB 1001, the governor said any similar measures would meet the same fate. But Young says that's not enough. Just because we have that protection with Governor Hobbs right now does not mean that we always will. Gael Esposito, a lobbyist and advocate for LGBTQ issues, says the four anti-drag bills that inspired a demonstration at the state capitol are an example of that. She says one side of the conversation looks more like a campaign of terror meant to target the queer community and its allies. It is to make business owners afraid of supporting them publicly. It is an attempt to shove us back into the closet by force if necessary. And that is what these bills are about. Esposito pointed to one example from February. We saw Brick Road Coffee in Tempe as a prime example of this. They were hosting a drag story hour, a very innocuous event where someone's reading uh, children's books. And, you know, they had a bomb threat. In addition to this, Young says there is concern about conversations happening at the national level. There is speculation that there's some nationwide conservative groups that are driving this effort. Here in Arizona, I know the Alliance Defending Freedom is a big group that is backing legislation such as this. Esposito called the ADF a hate group. They have a partnership in passing some of the most horrifying laws that we see, not just in the states, but in other nations. Laws like the one enacted in Uganda this May that criminalizes aggravated homosexuality, including the death penalty in some cases. But Esposito says the ADF's influence is closer to home than some might think. The ADF is headquartered right here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Even if bills that would harm the LGBTQ community don't become Arizona law, Casey Klaus with Progress Arizona says that for some lawmakers, they still serve a purpose. They know this will not be signed into law, but they are rallying a dangerous base of right-wing activists and fueling rampant homophobia and transphobia in Arizona. Klaus says it wasn't always this way. One bill introduced this session would have put a prohibition on so-called conversion therapy for minors. It didn't pass, but... A similar bill has been introduced numerous times, previously with Republican co-sponsors. Klaus says a shift toward extremism and focus on rallying an engaged voting base has changed things in recent years. Republicans are refusing to 
assign these bills to committee. They never get a hearing. They never get a vote. And so they don't move forward. Governor Hobbs signed an executive order to severely restrict the discredited practice in Arizona. Even so, Klaus says it's a terrifying time to be an Arizonan who isn't straight or cisgender. We're in a precarious place where one election is determining the future for the LGBTQ community in our state. Esposito says the queer community and its allies have hope, despite the hurdles they face. We are still going to find ways to move forward, even in the face of this fear and this violent intimidation. We will be here, whether they like it or not. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In science news, tissue engineering, gene editing, organs on chips. There's no question cell cultures and cell lines have transformed biology and medicine. But as we approach the limits of what one or two cell types can do, researchers are turning to a newer tool, one that can imitate bodily environments and mimic not just cells, but organs and tissues. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports on organoids. This has been important even in areas of research where there were already a lot of ways to culture and maintain cells, but it's been a revolution for rare diseases and for diseases where it's difficult to get cells out of the body to study in the first place. Andy Iwald directs the Department of Cell Biology at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. For more than a century, researchers have grown cells in labs to study diseases, toxins, and treatments. But like photocopying a single page of a book, culturing cells only tells part of the story. For the rest, they are looking to organoids, which contain multiple interacting cell types and mimic whole cellular environments, tissues, and organs. It's the difference between a cucumber and a salad, or a spark plug and an engine. They're organ-like. The structural features of the cells in these three-dimensional arrangements is very similar to how they would look inside the body. Ewald's research builds upon work by the field's pioneers, who showed in the late 1980s that a breast's epithelial cells, grown on a 3D scaffold of proteins like those that support tissues and organs in the body, could form ducts and even make milk, a process difficult to study in living humans. And we're able to watch new tubes initiate elongate, bifurcate, and polarize to their mature differentiation state, all within a few days in the laboratory. This window that organoids offer into complex cellular processes could help scientists see how cells develop, change, and die, even in the intricate, specialized world of the brain. ASU molecular biologist David Braffman. We really use these to study aspects of neurodevelopment and neurodegenerative disease with a focus on Alzheimer's disease. Picture an organoid as a gelatinous blob peppered with raisin-like spots, not unlike an unsavory ambrosia salad. The recipe is straightforward, if not simple. Start with a healthy or diseased sample, add enzymes, chop to separate desired cells, Place them in a 3D protein scaffold, add nutrient soup, and leave to grow in a climate-controlled chamber. If you take cells from different parts of the body and you put them in an appropriate three-dimensional environment, they'll organize into tissues that very closely resemble those that they would form in the body. Without scaffolding, organoids have as much structure as jello without a mold. With it, cells can organize into cellular tiramisus. Pancreatic cells will form pancreatic ducts. Neuronal cells will form brain structures, and they'll do it surrounded by familiar cellular faces. Whether that's blood vessels or immune cells or fibroblasts or other epithelial cells. So it's that three-dimensional context of proteins and other cells that allows a cell to build a realistic tissue or organ. Cancer cells can take weeks or years to form new tumors and vital organs, so Ewald uses organoids to 
model the different stages of the process in the lab. U of A cancer cell biologist Curtis Thorne uses them to study how gut tissues maintain, repair, and defend themselves. We can interrogate them in all different ways, probe them with different drugs or growth factor treatments, and they recapitulate the way the tissue behaves in the body, but they do it in a dish. Taken together, these benefits could fast-track personalized medicine, lower drug costs, and help treat orphan diseases. Organoids aren't a panacea, though. They're just better for certain uses. So again, the key word there is better. It's not anywhere close to the same sort of environment as in utero development, but it's better than 2D. Organoids remain fiddly, though. Hard to scale up, decipherable only via state-of-the-art imaging and genomics, and vexingly intricate. The more complex you make the model system, the less scalable it is. Until research clears this bottleneck, scientists must rely on simpler organoids and studies they can automate. Meanwhile, some worry fear and ignorance, mounting government red tape, and concerns over the vagaries of informed consent will further curtail progress, especially given assertions that some folks play by different rules. Within the law, patients are always protected, but some medical institutions are more aggressive at acquiring tissue under consent, but acquiring tissue and doing interesting things with that tissue. Organoids are exciting tools shedding new light on cellular development and disease within 3D structures mimicking tissues and organs. But only time will tell whether these cellular souffles rise to their full potential. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news. Wednesday was the first day of the new school year in the Peoria Unified School District. Roughly 36,000 students make Peoria one of Arizona's largest districts. Much of the attention drawn last school year was for the culture wars at school board meetings. The superintendent left in June, and there's little chance a permanent replacement could start work this fall. Matthew Casey reports. Frank Eager is both a product and a steward of Peoria schools. He graduated from Cactus High in the early 1990s, went back to coach basketball, and then was hired as an art teacher. You know, as somebody's getting ready to get married, I was very happy to go tell my wife I have a job. Eager later moved to Sunrise Mountain High and has built the ceramics program over two-plus decades. When I met him two weeks ago, he was portioning clay for students, technically for no pay. My contract doesn't start up till officially next Wednesday. Eager spoke while using a wire to cut blocks of clay and weigh them on a scale. He needs 100 10-pound bags just to start the school year, which Eager said is his last teaching in Peoria. I feel like we've become a political chess piece and a great big political game, and we're a pawn to be moved around. The players are members of the Peoria School Board, and Eager knows the situation is not unique to his district. He expects doing this interview will make him a target for retribution. You know, we're not respected. It's gotten worse over the years I've been in education. Eager said some parents submit legal public records requests for teacher communications, then scour documents for negative comments that become social media fodder. Now it's like I, I am scared to death to say anything outside of like, this is clay. This is the stages of clay. Look at the pretty thing you made. Eager said school board member Heather Rooks participates in this sort of public shaming. For two months, Rooks has declined interview requests from KJZZ News, including for this story. I mean, we lost superintendent because I, I think he got browbeated by the board. He just retired. 
A transgender person who teaches special ed has also filed a notice of claim, the first step toward a lawsuit against Rooks and the Peoria School Board alleging civil rights violations. Rooks and another member tried to pull them from a long list of rehires at a March 9th meeting. We are supposed to be presenting our district as the best. And what I just heard is not the best. Rooks spoke after parents told the board not to renew two teachers and an athletic director. One was angry with River Chinui over email about pronoun use and promoting transgender visibility. Dr. Reynolds, since you're the leader of all of these employees, are you okay with the three spoken tonight being allowed to be in this district? Rooks confronted the superintendent after the board was told by district staff that a separate process is legally required when teachers face discipline, and being rehired can't stop it from happening. Every uh, employee on this list is uh, deemed rehirable um, as of today. Disgusting. Wow. That's a disgrace. Rooks eventually joined a failed vote to oust Chinui, despite the board being told to first get legal advice. Chinui's notice of claim says their email in question was more than a year old. Peoria investigated it in 2022. Chinui went back to work, but has allegedly been harassed since. The drumline for Cactus High School welcomes students and staff back to campus for a celebration of the new school year. One of many speakers is 2020 Cactus alum Van Wynn, who's about to start senior year at Penn State University as a biomedical engineering major. None of this would have been possible without the guidance of the faculty members that I've met along the way. This success story of a former student on the cusp of a cutting-edge degree is the kind Peoria wants to get more attention. Wynn traces love for learning from elementary through high school. Then Wynn reminds teachers that their lessons have ingredients to spark innovative thinking. Why am I here? I'm here because I met some great faculty members along the way who changed the trajectory of my life and have helped me grow as a person. Another speaker is Peoria's acting superintendent, who is also working as chief technology and operations officer, plus a building trades teacher. The school board recently met about the search for a permanent superintendent. If all goes well, it could be done by the end of 2023. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. The future of the Pac-12 is up in the air after moves to the Big 12. Here's the show co-host Mark Brody with a closer look. Last week saw a massive shift in the landscape of college sports, with Arizona at the center of it. The University of Arizona and Arizona State University, along with three other Pac-12 schools, left the athletic conference, leaving just four schools in the Pac-12 as of right now. U of A, ASU, and the University of Utah joined the University of Colorado in the Big 12, Beginning next year, the so-called four-corner schools will compete against colleges in Texas, Kansas, and Ohio instead of California, Washington, and Oregon. Joining me to talk about what the move means for U of A and ASU, as well as the future of the Pac-12, is Stuart Mandel, editor-in-chief of College Football at The Athletic. Hey there, Stuart. Hey, how are you? I'm doing all right, thanks. So ASU was kind of a a holdout, it seems. Uh, Michael Crow has acknowledged that uh, he was kind of a stalwart of the Pac-12, and it seemed as though he was trying to do everything in his power to keep the conference together. What 
happened? Like, what was the, I guess, maybe the final straw that led led Michael Crow to say, this just isn't sustainable anymore? Yeah, I mean, at that point that we're talking about Thursday night, um, there was an Arizona Board of Regents meeting. Uh, we went into it with the assumption that Arizona, University of Arizona, was going to go to the Big 12. Michael Crow, as you said, definitely didn't want to go. And so I think at that point, they were kind of bound together and they were ready and willing to sign the grant of rights the next morning. But Oregon and Washington had gotten an offer from the Big Ten, the Big Ten being probably the most stable, the most lucrative conference in the country. Um, it was not they would have to come in at, at a partial share, not a full member. So it wasn't necessarily a no brainer decision. But Friday morning, 7 a.m., they were about to have this uh, meeting where the Arizona schools thought they were going to be signing a grant of rights. And instead, Oregon and Washington came on and informed them they were joining the Big Ten. And at that point, the Pac-12 was down to six teams. Uh, Oregon, Washington, probably the most valuable brands, which means they would make even less TV money without them. And at that point, I think they felt they had no choice but to go to the Big 12. Well, you mentioned TV money, and that seems to have played a fairly significant role, perhaps not surprisingly here, in terms of how much money the schools will get from the Big 12, 30-something million dollars a year, versus a potential streaming deal with Apple Plus that would have paid them considerably less. The Apple Plus deal was, was you know, very underwhelming to, to people in the conference and also very unusual in that it was less guaranteed money and more if we sell a certain number of subscriptions, there was a revenue sharing arrangement and the commissioner of the Pac-12, George Klavkoff, was telling them, if we sell X number of subscriptions, guys, you're not just going to make more than the Big 12, you're going to make a lot more than the Big 12. Mm. But that would have required them to take a little bit of a leap of faith that this was going to take off. And, you know, maybe they would have, but you also have the factor of now the only people that can see your games are the people that subscribe for this service. And we're talking... Um, 2 million, maybe 3 million people, whereas a conference like the Big 12 that has deals with ESPN and Fox, obviously many, many, many more uh, households have those networks. So it was a combination of, yes, I think the money concerned them, but also the notion that if the only people that can see our games are, are Pac-12 fans who subscribe to this service, that's going to have a negative effect on exposure, have a negative effect on recruiting because if we're recruiting a player uh, let's say in Illinois, he's probably not going to have bought the uh, Pac-12 mm-hmm. Apple Plus package. So um, now Michael Crow will tell you he thought it was a great deal, that, that Apple is the future and they should have done it. But I can see why others would have considered it too risky. So where does this leave the Pac-12 and its future? I mean, we can assume that somewhere Bill Walton is, you know, crying somewhere, talking, you know, about the, the demise of the Conference of Champions. But right now there are four schools left, two of whom might be looking to join the uh, the ACC, which I should point out has the word Atlantic Coast uh, right in its name. So, like, is this it for the Pac-12? I fail to see how it survives. I mean, you're down to four teams, and... You know, because their TV deal is running out next year, they have no they have no guarantee of a TV deal beyond this year. And they also any of those teams and these teams that have left didn't have to pay a dollar to leave. There's been talk of the pack. What's left of the Pac-12 adding teams from, say, the Mountain West. Those schools have to pay a huge exit fee Mm. to leave their conference. So it seems more likely that schools would go in the opposite direction. The only thing I can think is. 
um, you know, the Pac-12 is has some special status in the college football playoff in the NCAA where they make uh, they make a bigger cut of the CFP, for example. And so maybe they could prove that, hey, pay your exit fee. You're still going to make more money coming over here. But that's a big ask uh, to, to ask schools to, to not only pay their exit fee, but there's no guarantee. We can't even tell you what, if any, money you're going to make next year if you come over here. Right. Well, so... This obviously, I mean, most much of the conference realignment, won't, I won't say all, but much of it has been based around football. But, you know, Pac-12 schools, of course, are very, you know, interested and important in terms of Olympic sports and other types of sports. Where does this realignment leave those sports? And, you know, we've heard from some student athletes who are not super thrilled to be, you know, not playing on the West Coast anymore, but to be playing in the Midwest and in some cases in the East. I think it's clear that those sports have been completely disregarded in this, both in terms of, like you said, the schools that are joining the Big Ten and and those athletes will have considerably more travel. But Stanford in particular is almost every year the number one athletic department in the country in terms of the rankings that they do across all sports. They are obviously in a big bind right now because they rely on that television money or overall revenue from the conference to pay for uh, softball, baseball, lacrosse, all of these sports that don't pay for themselves. And the notion that Stanford of all schools that produces the most Olympians of any school in the country might, you know, have to either cut teams or drastically cut back on resources. People all across college sports right now are just aghast at that and waiting to see if maybe they get a bailout from, uh, you know, the Big Ten didn't add them last week. Could they eventually do it? The ACC thing, I don't see that happening. It's just you know, two West Coast schools having to travel to the East Coast for every single game. Um, it's a real statement on where we are in college sports. It's basically, um, you know, it's a bunch of TV, a bunch of TV uh, packages for college football. And all of the other athletes and all of the other sports are kind of collateral damage. Quickly, Stuart, before we let you go, do you see this as the last big domino in terms of conference realignment or are there more to come, do you think? Um, maybe not right now, but I think... You know, I think clearly the direction this is headed is the Big Ten and SEC are so far ahead of the other conferences financially. Everybody's looking to either get in on those conferences or find a way to make as much money as they do. So I think the one to look at next is the ACC, where you have a school, Florida State, that is openly talking about leaving the conference if they don't get a bigger cut of the pie. It would have been unthinkable a week ago that a conference as um, storied as the Pac-12 could just go away. So who's to say that same thing couldn't happen to the ACC? Interesting. All right. That is Stuart Mandel, editor-in-chief of College Football at The Athletic. Stuart, thanks for your insights. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. In business news, Maricopa County expects to help more than 80 home buyers through a new assistance program. From our business desk, Christina Estes reports. The county has earmarked half a million dollars in federal funds to help lower-income applicants cover down payments and other costs. Human Services Director Jacqueline Edwards says qualified homebuyers receive a forgivable seven-year loan. There's no payments that are being made in that seven-year period of this loan. It just reflects as um, a lien on their title. And after that seven-year period, it gets released and whatever equity that they've accrued in their home um, would be there. Applicants must meet credit and underwriting guidelines and have a household income below 80 percent of the area median. For a household of four people, that's no more than $74,000. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Fronteras News. 
U.S. House Republicans were back in southern Arizona this week for a remote congressional hearing about what they call a crisis at the border created by the Biden administration. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports. At a community college in Cochise County, roughly 30 miles from the border, Republican lawmakers from the House Oversight and Accountability Committee hammered on Biden administration policies. Congressman Andy Biggs took aim at CBP-1, the government app that has migrants apply for appointments with border officers to begin the asylum process. The CBP-1 app hurts Americans by welcoming any migrant with a smartphone into the U.S. and assists the cartels in soliciting more customers to make the dangerous trip to our border. In reality, it can take months for an asylum seeker to get one of a fixed number of CBP-1 appointments available at the border each day. And getting one doesn't guarantee entry to the U.S. The app has also faced criticism from human rights advocates, who argued the process is glitchy and doesn't work for people in immediate danger. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from Sierra Vista. And you've been listening to the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. Stay hydrated. <laughs>